It's been said, he that would be wise, let him read the Proverbs. And he that would be holy, let him read the Psalms. That's well stated. The Psalms are more than just a songbook. They're an ancient blog where the author carries on a conversation about his experiences with God. The Psalms are a diary for a heart hungry for God. You could call the Psalms spiritual lighter fluid. Each Psalm primes us to be set on fire for God. We begin tonight with Psalm 50. It was written by Asaph. Along with Heman and Juduthan, he was one of David's three chief musicians. Asaph was a temple worship leader who authored 12 psalms. The others are Psalms 73 through 83. Psalm 50 looks to the return of the Messiah at the end of the age. It outlines for two groups the criteria by which they'll be judged. Verses 1 through 15 speaks to God's people Israel, and verses 16 to 23 informs the wicked. Psalm 50 begins, The Mighty One, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Recently, a Baylor University study revealed that 24.4% of Americans believe in a distant God, that God governed, that God created the universe and the laws of nature that govern it, but He does little to interact with us or to judge humans. According to the Baylor survey, God ranks low on engagement and low on emotion. Folks believe that God just sort of set the world in motion, wound up the clock, so to speak, and then just walked away. The Creator spoke the universe into existence, then chose to have no other conversations. Well, Asaph would have terribly disagreed. He begins Psalm 50 by noting that God has not only spoken in the past, but that He continues to speak from the rising to the setting of the sun. Every day, all day, God is speaking of His grace and His glory to listening ears. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. God reveals Jesus to believing hearts. Psalm 50 says that God is speaking. Are we listening? Well, the psalmist continues, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Zion was God's nickname for Jerusalem. And from this city, God will shine forth. Some people see this psalm as prophetic of the last days when Jesus returns to earth, establishes His kingdom, and reigns from Jerusalem. The psalmist says, Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before Him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around Him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Actually, all God's covenants are sealed with a sacrifice. His deals with man are signed in blood. Even the new covenant is sealed with the blood of His only Son. He says, let the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. And then the notation, Selah. Remember, Selah is an instruction to the readers. It literally means to pause and to think. 
And here's a matter that we should certainly think over. One day we'll all meet our Maker. We'll stand before God and give an account of the life that we've lived. The psalmist tells us, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I love a story told by Howard Hendricks, a longtime professor at Dallas Seminary. In its early days, the school hovered near bankruptcy. At one point, it looked as if the seminary might have to close its doors. On the afternoon the debt was due, the leaders of the seminary gathered in the school's office to pray. When it came his turn, Dr. Harry Ironside prayed, Lord, I know you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please sell some and send us the money. Dr. Ironside didn't know that a Texas cattleman had just walked into the office that instant and had handed over the proceeds that he had made from a cattle deal. He told the secretary that he felt that God had wanted him to donate the profits. She tapped on the door and handed the check to seminary president Louis Sperry Schaefer. When he saw that the check was for the exact amount that they needed, he shouted to Ironside, Harry, God sold the cattle. And indeed he did. Tonight, why don't you ask God to sell off a few cattle for the financial need that you face? These verses were intended to straighten out a misconception. Over the course of Hebrew history, Israel had slaughtered millions of animals and sacrificed to God. A river of blood flowed from the brazen altar. But God didn't order the sacrifices because He likes the smell of barbecue. The whole bloody affair taught a lesson that the wages of sin is death, that a life had to be taken for sin to be forgiven. Sacrifices were important not because they met a need in God, but because they were man's opportunity to express a repentant attitude in our faith toward God. In verse 10, God is saying, Why would He want a bull or a goat when every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills? Never give an offering because you think God needs the money. Never serve God because you think He can't get the job done without you. When you offer God a sacrifice, it's not because He needs what you're giving. It's because you need to give. A sacrifice reveals a right attitude. Verse 11 tells us, I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. God's preoccupation with sacrifice is not because He likes steak or that He gets hungry. Even if God did grow hungry and needed a meal, He wouldn't come crawling to us. He doesn't need anything that you or I could offer Him. In fact, God has no needs at all. The universe belongs to our great God. The psalmist continues, Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You know, it's interesting, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D., it left the Jews without a temple and thus nowhere to offer the sacrifices that the law had required. Actually, for the last 2,000 years, Judaism has been a hollow religion. There's a reason God allowed the destruction of the temple and the end of the sacrifices. They were no longer needed, for Jesus had taken their place. 
I love what author John Phillips writes. He says, all Judaism ever stood for, represented, taught, or prophesied has been fulfilled in Christ. Verse, four tells us, verse 14 tells us, offer to God thanksgiving. In other words, be thankful and pay your vows to the Most High. Be trustworthy. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Be trusting, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Here's what God desires, a thankful and trustworthy and trusting heart. He says, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? God does oppose the hypocrite, someone who just teaches God's word but refuses to live it. And then he says, when you saw a thief, you consented with him. And have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. And here's the mistake that we often make. We project our own limitations and attitudes on God. Well, if I were God, I would have judged the world by now. He must be unable or perhaps unwilling. Not necessarily. For God doesn't think as man thinks. Just because he's silent about sin this moment doesn't mean he can't break his silence soon. Psalm ends. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Psalm 51 is prefaced. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. About a year had passed since David strolled out on the balcony and saw a naked woman bathing in the moonlight. The random sighting aroused his desire. Lust and curiosity morphed into adultery and eventually murder. David defiled the woman. Then he murdered her husband. He tried his best to cover his tracks. And David thought it was all over. But what you sweep under the rug has a tendency of not wanting to stay there. Every person has two choices when they sin. You can either confess or conceal Confess and God will forgive, but conceal and God will find a way to reveal. David failed to confess his sin and the king caused a royal mess. This is why God sent the prophet Nathan to pay David a visit. Nathan told the story of a rich man who stole his poor neighbor's only lamb to serve to his friend. The king was clear and decisive. He said, such a man needed to die. Who was this man? And that's when Nathan fired back, you are the man. I believe David was glad that he had finally been found out. His guilty conscience had been tormenting him night and day. Now the masquerade is finally over. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession. It's a classic chapter. David pours out his heart. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He's saying, Lord, erase my record of evil. 
He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. When David had tried to sweep it under the rug, it didn't work. His sin still tormented him. His sin became a burr in his saddle, a pebble in his shoe. Rather than sweep it under a rug, he asked God now to vacuum it away. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Hey, wait a minute. David sinned against Bathsheba, his other wives and children, Uriah, even the nation itself. But here he says to God, Against you only have I sinned. You see, first and foremost, David understood that his sin was an offense to God. There's never a harmless sin, for all sin breaks the heart of God. And then he says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David admits for himself and for all human beings, it's our nature to sin. We're sinners from the start. It's not just that we slip up on occasion and miss the mark. No, our aim is warped. None of us shoot straight anymore. It's been said sin doesn't make us a sinner. We sin because we are a sinner. He says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. God demands that we be ruthlessly honest with ourselves. This is a big part of our repentance. We need to admit our need for God and for His forgiveness. And that's what he does in this next verse. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was a shrub that grew in Israel. The branch had a spongy texture and thus it was used by the Jewish priest to sprinkle blood on the sacrifice. Here David wants to be purified with the hyssop. He says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The word wash here refers to a woman who took her garments down to the river and beat them against the rocks, literally beat out the dirt from her clothes. And here David is giving God permission to beat the evil out of him if necessary. You know, if you want to be clean, God may have to scrub and beat some dirt out of you as well. Are you willing to allow the divine launderer to do whatever is needful in your life? And then he says, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God washes and renew a man's mind. But we are given a new spirit. Here David asked God to create within him a new heart. He wants God to cut out his old sinful nature and plant within him a new nature. You and I need a spirit that's compliant and consistent, not that's hard and rebellious. And the good news is is that God specializes in heart transplants. David prays in verse 11, Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Understand, David is an Old Testament believer who lacks the assurance offered to us under the new covenant. He recognizes that sin separates man from God, and he knows that he's sinned, and so he prays that God will spare him sin's consequences. He adds, 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. You know, when Jesus pardons a New Testament believer, we're forgiven of all our sin, past, present, even future sins. We don't lose our salvation because we sin, but we can lose our joy. You'll probably never hear a therapist or a psychologist say it, but a major cause of anxiety and depression in our culture is unconfessed sin. I read of a trend recently in Roman Catholicism. In 2005, 42% of practicing Catholics said they never visit the confessional booth. Only 2% said they go regularly to confession. I would applaud this trend if it meant that Roman Catholics were learning to bypass the priest and go directly to God. But I'm afraid there's another cause that also affects us Protestants. The notion of sin and the importance of confession are waning in popularity. People today want to rationalize their mistakes rather than admit to their sins. And yet the human psyche was never designed to carry the weight of guilt. You rid yourself of guilt and shame, not by denying sin or redefining sin or excusing sin, but by confessing sin. It's repentance that restores our joy. And then verse 13 tells us, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. David promises to help others learn from his mistakes. In fact, Psalm 32 was an effort for David to teach transgressors. He says here, Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. If a burnt offering could have cleansed David, he would have offered a million bulls and goats. They took more. God wanted from him a broken and a contrite heart. David's confession expresses such a heart. And in response to this man's brokenness, God's Spirit restored to David the joy of his salvation. The psalm concludes, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Psalm 52 is addressed to the chief musician. And it's said to be a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 22 tells us about this dog named Doeg who ratted out David. When David went to the tabernacle at Nob, Doeg saw him, and he raced to King Saul to report David's whereabouts. Saul was so outraged that the priest Ahimelech had helped David, he ordered the execution of the entire priestly family. This Doeg himself took his sword and slaughtered 85 of God's priests. When news of what happened reached David, he wrote Psalm 52. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. 
Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Hey, we need to beware. The sharpest knife is the human tongue. A loose tongue can cut and kill a person. Here's a riddle. I'm more deadly than the screaming shell of a gun. I win without killing. I break hearts and wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and seldom do I forgive. What's my name? Well, you guessed it. It's gossip. The tongue is a deadly thing. David exposes this doeg. He says, you love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Pause and think about that. Selah. God will see to it that Doeg suffers a worse fate than the priest. Verse 5 is an ominous prediction. He says, God shall destroy you forever. Doeg will become an example of what happens to a wicked man. Verse 6, the righteous also shall see in fear and shall laugh at him saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. The city of Nob, the home of the priest, was actually located on the Mount of Olives or close by. David said he was surrounded by olive trees. An olive tree is evergreen. It grows all year under all circumstances. David, too, will flourish. His faith in God made him an all-season saint. Psalm 52 ends by forecasting Doeg's demise and David's deliverance. God will destroy this Doeg, but David will be as fruitful as an evergreen tree. Verse 9 tells us, I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. It was among these very same olive trees on this very same hill, a thousand years later, that our Lord Jesus was betrayed by another Doeg. Judas sold the Sanhedrin, told the Sanhedrin the whereabouts of Jesus, just as Doeg betrayed David into the hands of Saul. It reminds me of the man who lived to be 100 years old. A reporter asked him, what's your greatest accomplishment? The old man answered, well, I've lived 100 years and I don't have any enemies in this world. Later he added, well, I've outlived all my enemies. Well, in Psalm 52, David is saying, God will see to it that he outlives Doeg. Psalm 53 is nearly identical to another psalm, Psalm 14. Perhaps it was similar lyrics, but sung to a different tune. Tonight we're going to read through the psalm. For commentary, I'll just refer you back to Psalm 14. Psalm 53 begins, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. 
Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you'll recognize that here, that there in Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes these verses here in Psalm 53. These verses are quoted to prove that we're all sinners. He says, Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? There they are in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame, because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when God brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Psalm 54 is to the chief musician with stringed instruments. Apparently, this psalm sounded best with a string ensemble. And it was a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding with us? I guess while David's on the subject of his enemies who tried to rat him out, why not deal with these Ziphites? For like Doeg, the Ziphites ratted on David's whereabouts. Psalms 1 Samuel 23 and then in 26 record the events that are referenced here. On these two occasions, the Ziphites give leads to Saul that help set a trap for David. David begins Psalm 54, Save me, O God by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. David never tried to harm the Ziphites. He couldn't figure out what they had against him. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. You know, whenever I fly on an airplane, rarely do I think about the pilot until we hit some turbulence. And this is why on the voyage of life, God has us sail through some rough patches of air. It's how we learn to trust in our pilot, in our captain Jesus. It gets our eyes back on the pilot, puts our trust in him. In Psalm 54, David gets ratted out by strangers. But that's a relatively easy trial to handle compared to what he faces in Psalm 55. You expect as much from your enemies. But oh, not from your friends. And in Psalm 55, David has to deal with deeper wounds. He's betrayed by a former friend. His buddy joins a coup d'etat against him. You know, there's an old saying, against a foe I can defend, but heaven help me against a disloyal friend. David begins Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. I am restless in my complaint and moan noisily because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. David is under attack, but not just any attack. He says these words, My heart is severely pained within me, 
and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. David was no stranger to danger. He had his share of enemies, but this was no typical run-of-the-mill trial that David faces here in Psalm 55. No, this is something even more serious. His son Absalom has rebelled against him. He wants to take his throne. David's friends are fleeing to the other side. This Absalom has stolen from his father his crown, his city, his concubines, even his counselors. And David is in great pain. So I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. You know, David's first reaction to this severe trial was to just run away. Have you ever felt like running? Just kind of getting away from it all? Here David wishes he had wings as a dove. Hey, don't ever forget, God might have us refresh ourselves, but He never wants us to retreat. Our spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6 has no protection for the backside. God never wants us just to turn and run. With His strength and His wisdom and His backbone, we can face our problems and we can stand up to our enemies. Always remember, when you run from a problem, you take your biggest problem with you. And that's you. Deal with the problem and it makes a better you. A London tabloid once offered a prize for the best answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? It was Christian philosopher G.K. Chesterton who won the grand prize. He responded simply, I am. Verse 9 tells us, Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. For I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in its midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. I'll never forget being asked by a group of pastors, Sandy, what has been your greatest disappointment in ministry? It was an easy question, really. But without any hesitation at all, I replied, the wounds inflicted by my friends. You know, I'd rather face a thousand enemy troops than get knife-stabbed in the back by a supposed friend. And this was true of David. One man particularly had betrayed him. David speaks to him directly in verse 13. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. We learned from Israel's history that Ahithophel was David's companion. They had walked to the temple together. They had worshipped the Lord together. David and Ahithophel were more than blood brothers. They shared spiritual ties. But their friendship ran amok when David tore apart Ahithophel's family. Ahithophel, you see, had a granddaughter. Her name was Bathsheba. Ahithophel could never let go of the bitterness he felt toward David for violating Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. Apparently, with the first opportunity that arose, Ahithophel turned on David and he joined in 
on Absalom's revolt. It crushed David to have both his son and his best friend become his avowed enemies. He reacts in verse 15. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. David cries out to God to take vengeance on his enemies. Remember, in contrast, Jesus prayed for his enemies that God would forgive them. David says, as for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me. For There were many against me. God will hear and afflict them. Even he who abides from of old, Selah. Because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. And again, David speaks of his betrayers. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Ahithophel, he was a skilled conniver. He had pledged allegiance to David's face. But then he betrayed the king the moment he turned his back. David says, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. Well, Psalm 56 is set to a tune called the silent dove in distant lands. I have no idea what that might have sounded like, but the title sounds like a country song to me. Some Bible teachers see in the title of the 56th Psalm an inference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is indeed the silent dove in distant lands. The Holy Spirit is in the world today, but He is a long, long way from home. The Spirit works silently in the hearts of men, And yet his ministry is both powerful and strategic. This psalm is also labeled a mictum of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. David had gone to Gath, the home of Goliath, naively thinking that his enemies would grant him exile. Instead, they took him prisoner. He escaped only by pretending madness and feigning insanity. The psalm begins, Be merciful to me, O God, For man would swallow me up, fighting all day he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Here's an incredible comfort. Did you know that God bottles our tears? He doesn't let a single sorrow go to waste. Notice, too, this is the first example in history of bottled water. God loves us. He cares so much about us that He gathers our tears and keeps them bottled up. 
For some of us, that might be in an 80-gallon drum. But one day, his joy might just compensate us for the tears we've shed. Who knows if he won't just turn our tears into a sweet elixir. That may be one of the blessings God has for us one day. But notice here the implication. God is so concerned for our feelings that he's aware of every single tear that rolls down our cheeks. Did you know God is that concerned about you? That he knows and understands your sorrows better than you do? He sees our tears as liquid prayers. Not a single teardrop escapes God's attention. You can be assured of that. Then we're told, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God, I will praise His word. In the Lord, I will praise His word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Notice where he found his footing. Verse 10 praises God's word. It's the word of God that gives traction to our faith. He found his footing in God's word. Well, Psalm 57, like Psalm 16, as well as Psalm 56 to 60, are all labeled a mictum of David. But what is a mictum? There are actually three possible definitions. Mictum can mean jewel. That would mean that these are David's favorite psalms. These are his jewels, his favorites. The word mictum can also mean engraved. But these were psalms that should be engraved in our minds and hearts. It should not be forgotten. And then a third possibility is the word mictum could mean hidden. In other words, these psalms have a hidden or a below-the-surface meaning. Well, Psalm 57 is a mictum of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. You recall the story. David was hiding from Saul in the very cave that the king chose to use as a jiffy johnny. When Saul left the sunshine to enter into the dark cave, he couldn't see David's men in the shadows. As King Saul squatted down to do his business, David could have killed him. Instead, he just sort of slipped up behind him and he clipped off a portion of his royal robe. Psalm 57 describes what went on in David's heart at the time. Notice also the tune chosen for these lyrics. It was set to do not destroy. That was the title of the tune. Oh, based on David's attitude towards Saul, how appropriate. His heart was do not destroy. Saul is grunting as David sneaks up on him. David could have destroyed him, but instead he refuses to take matters into his own hands. He says to his heart, do not destroy David waited and trusted God to bring about his will, his way. David begins, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. Like a baby chick seeking protection under his mother's wings, David ran to God in the face of serious calamities. And this is an appropriate response for us when we also encounter trouble. Recall Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus looked out over Jerusalem 
And he recounted how often he had wanted to shelter Israel. As a hen gathers her chicks, he'll provide us the same refuge if we seek it under his wings. He says, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. Notice the words, all things. They're in italics, aren't they? This means that they weren't in the original text. Translators added them to help with the readability of the passage. But leave out these words, all things, and the verse becomes a fill in the blank. It's as if God is giving you a carte blanche. What do you need? Get more specific than all things. What's the one thing you need tonight that God can perform for you? He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me into the midst of it. They themselves have fallen. Selah. God saw to it that David's enemies fell into their own traps. When Saul stepped into that cave, he was the pursuer. David the prey. But God turned the tables on Saul. Saul's life ended up into David's hands. And then verse 7, David says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. The old King James translates steadfast as my heart is fixed. Like a fighter pilot who locks his guns onto the target, David fixes his sights on God. This is the key to following Jesus. No matter the circumstances, no matter the distractions, we need to lock on and fix our hearts on our Lord Jesus. And then David says, Awake my glory, awake lute and harp, I will awake the dawn. It reminds me of the barnyard rooster who was bragging to the other animals. He said every morning the sun rose just to hear him crow. Well, David has something to crow about. He says, I will awake the dawn. He'll wake up the sun. He'll awaken his harp to praise the Lord every morning as he arises. And then Psalm 57 closes with an eruption of praise. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth.